Well, good morning. As we enter into our message time, we are uh, starting a brand new sermon series for the new year from the Gospel of John. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 20. Surprisingly, we're not going to start in chapter 1. We're going to start in chapter 20. You'll find out why in just a moment. Because we're going to do today just an overview of the Gospel of John. I know that's not an exciting title. Uh, It's the best I could come up with this week, all right? An overview of the Gospel of John starting in chapter 20. You know, uh, most of the world looks upon uh, these crazy guys that jump out of airplanes. They're called adrenaline junkies. And they they jump out of perfectly good airplanes. And, uh, you know, kind of think it's a bit over the edge, but purposely, how about this? Jumping from 25,000 feet without a parachute. That would be suicide, right? Not, Not anymore. On July 30th of 2016, a Hollywood stuntman, a skydiving luminary by the name of Luke Akins, jumped out of a Cessna Grand Caravan airplane 25,000 feet above Simi Valley, California. He plummeted five miles, five miles through the air without any kind of parachute, landing neatly in a square 100 by 100 foot net that was set up to catch him. At impact, they said his body was moving at over 120 miles per hour. It's nuts, isn't it? You might even say it's stupid. I mean, this guy had a wife and a four-year-old son, but there's another angle to the story. Akins was clear that this stunt involved a ridiculous amount of training. For starters, the 42-year-old man had over 18,000 jumps to his name. And then he prepared for this particular stunt by doing dozens of training jumps, each naturally wearing a parachute, aiming at that 100-square-foot target, and opening his chute at the last possible moment. In his practice jumps, he would pull the cord at 1,000 feet. After falling 24,000 feet, uh, he had to get special approval from the government just to do that. And he said in the run-up to the jump that he had consistently been hitting a much smaller target, giving him greater leeway with the full-size net. And Mr. Aiken said this, whenever people attempt to push the limits of what's considered humanly Uh, possible, they're invariably described as crazy. And I'm here to show you, he said, that if we approach it in the right way and we test it and we prove that it's good to go, we can do things that we don't think are possible. Amen? All right. Well, I got one amen out there. Thank you, Larry. Now, I still think the guy's a bit off. I would not jump out of that plane, but he does have a good point. Proper training will get you to places that you never thought possible. You see, friends, faith isn't just a blind leap out into nothingness. It always involves risk, but it is also based on good and sufficient reasons. And that's our big idea for today. This statement is true. When having, whether it's having enough faith to, to skydive without a parachute or much more applicable to each of us here today, having faith to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Lord, our ruler of our life. 
And so as I mentioned, today we're beginning this new message series through the Gospel of John. It's going to be, I'll just let you know ahead of time, it's going to be a lengthy series. It's going to take us through the whole calendar year. Now, we're going to take a few breaks along the way. We're going to have some guest speakers. There's going to be some holiday times and things like that. But this series through the Gospel of John is not going to end until December. Now, before we get into the scripture today, I want to introduce and just talk a little bit about the author. I think that's very important for us. Now, uh, just a bit of background. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. And these good news books are biographies of Jesus while he was in this world. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means similar or summary. Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain roughly the same outline, the same general details, and the same timeline in over 65% of their writings about the death, uh, birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord. However, the Gospel of John is significantly different than the first three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written early, somewhere between 41 and 69 AD. Remember that Jesus died somewhere around 33 AD. But John's Gospel comes much, much later, probably written around 80 to 90 AD. John was an old man, and it's likely that he had read the writings of the other gospel writers. And as Jesus' closest friend on this earth, he decided to give the closest eyewitness account of any gospel written to everything that he saw his best friend do and say. Now Matthew and Mark, they heard and saw some of it. And Luke, a doctor and a researcher, he got his information directly from a variety of eyewitnesses. But John, John lived it. And therefore, he is the closest witness to the life and the words and the personality and the mission that Jesus had more than anyone else in the Bible. You know, it's likely that John knew Jesus growing up as children. He was the closest to Jesus during his public ministry. He was part of that inner circle of the disciples with his brother James and with Peter. And they saw things that even the other disciples didn't experience. And he was the only one, the only one that has a, a direct eyewitness to the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. From his per first public interactions to his final words uttered from the cross. John was so close to Jesus that Jesus didn't even call on his own family to take care of his mother, but he called upon his best friend John to make sure that his mother Mary was protected and taken care of after his death. That's quite a resume, isn't it? You know, the famous reformer Martin Luther said that this gospel, the gospel of John, is so important that some world, if some world leader were to decree that all the known copies of the Bible were to be burned, if the, if the church could just save John's gospel and the book of Romans, then the essence of Christianity would endure such a purge. That's pretty incredible. And it's why I'm excited to begin this study through John's gospel with you. I believe that as we work our way through John, that it can change our lives. That it can increase our faith. That it can bring us closer to the subject of the book, which is our Lord, our God, our Savior, our Healer, our King, Jesus. So let's dig in. Let's get ready to, if you will, jump out of the airplane 
and dive into the Gospel of John. So today we're going to do this quick overview of John's Gospel. But it's based just on this one key verse. And it comes near, near the end of the Gospel. But it is John's thesis statement. The reason why he wrote the Gospel. So let's read these words together from John 20 verses 30 and 31. The words are on the screen. Let's read. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. The word of God. That is a powerful thesis statement. Sixty years or so had passed since Jesus had last walked the dusty streets and roads of Galilee, and John, the beloved disciple, now an old man, had witnessed the incredible advance of the kingdom of heaven, kind of like a lava flow pushing aside every other barrier and engulfing everything in its path. The kingdom of God had penetrated the darkened world. Christianity was spreading all over the known world at that time, flooding the continents with the flaming brilliance of the gospel. And the world was bathed in light in which darkness could not extinguish that light. And so prompted by the Spirit of God to, to draft this firsthand account, the, the aged Saint John, the apostle, he put down on parchment the events of Christ's ministry during his days on this earth. Nearing the end of the gospel account that would bear his name, the old man wrote these words that we just read together, our key text today. John was saying that the reason that he wrote his gospel was that so that anyone who would read it would believe. Believe. He wanted to encourage belief and he noted key elements of what Jesus had done, and he testified that he had done so, so much more. And then in the very final words of the Gospel of John, John would write this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John is saying, I'm giving you just a glimpse, just a taste but it's a key taste of what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and why it's important for you to have your full trust and belief in him. In his time on this earth, Jesus was constantly at work, doing those things that his father had appointed him to do. And John's words stimulate us to, to reflect on whether we see him working today or whether our faith is in just kind of a myth for which there's no evidence. That's the decision that each of us have to come to. Perhaps, perhaps the reason that sometimes we feel that we don't see Jesus working today is perhaps because we have our eyes closed to what is happening around us. Maybe we're not looking for the right things or we're ignoring what is obvious. And so what did Jesus do while he walked those dusty roads of Palestine? John arranges his gospel around some key signs that Jesus performed. You know, when you're driving in your car, you're, you pay attention to the signs. At least, at least you're supposed to, right? 
Some of those signs inform you to go in one direction. Others say to turn here. Still others tell you how fast you can go. Signs are there to point out or to remind us of very important things. Now, the original word for sign in the Bible in the New Testament was the Greek word simeon, which later came to in Latin to be the word signum. Then we from that get our English word signal, insignia, signature. And so signum can mean anything from an identifying mark. I want you to think about X marks the spot. That's the signum. To a proof or even a banner to follow, a sign to follow. So John's purpose was to reveal Jesus as God in human form. And so as we travel through John's gospel, we're going to take time to review these signs since they are each unique, revealing an important facet of Jesus's deity. That word deity is a word we're going to use a lot. And it refers to the quality or the nature of God's being. Excuse me, not deity, divinity. Divinity. And so divinity belongs to God alone. And so through these signs, John helps his readers, he helps us, to see that Jesus is divine as well as human. Jesus is both God and man. And so the signs in John reveal Jesus' divinity. Now, in John's gospel, the word sign is also often used to mean miracle, some supernatural event. And unlike the gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke, John does not record very many miracles of Jesus. There are only seven listed in John. But each tells us very special things we need to know about Jesus. So we're going to take some time to take a quick look at these seven signs, which will be, if you will, our markers as we travel through this book. And let's remember that we will look more in depth at each one of these signs as we come to them through the Gospel of John. But today, we're merely, if you will, kind of spreading our map out to plot our route or plugging in our coordinates on the GPS to see the route we should take. So we're going to look at the seven signs. And the first sign in John is Jesus changing the water to wine. Sign number one, Jesus' first public miracle. And this sign takes place at a family wedding feast. And the text tells us exactly why this miracle was performed and what we can learn from it. So let's read John chapter 2, verse 11 together. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. <clears throat> so, notice that the sign that Jesus performed manifested his glory. That's a fancy way of saying it made something known. In other words, it showed or made known that Jesus had divine authority. He is Lord over nature and created things. And so this was a wow moment for his disciples to see him take what they knew was water and turn it in to wine. And by the way, not just any wine, but the best wine that anybody had ever tasted. And the result of this manifestation is that Jesus' disciples, what? Believed in him. 
And remember, this fits in perfectly with John's overarching purpose for the gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So you see how the sign illustrates who Jesus is and points back to the main purpose. Let's look at the second sign. Sign number two, the healing of an official son. This second sign of Jesus takes place in chapter four, and it involves the miraculous long-distance healing of a government official's son. This man had traveled a long distance to find Jesus and appeal to Jesus to come and to heal his dying son. I want us to just read a small part of this account from John chapter 4, verses 49 and 50. Let's read this together. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Wow. The healing of his son led this official and all of his household to believe in Jesus. We find that out later in the text. However limited the official's belief was when he set out to find Jesus, it's clear that when Jesus says go, that he now believed something significant about Jesus. In the person of Jesus as the Christ, not only the Lord of nature, but now this second sign shows us that Jesus is Lord of life. Lord of life. The main lesson of this second sign is that, that Jesus is Lord of life and that he is able to give life to all on the condition of faith, of belief. Let's move on to the third sign. Sign number three, the healing of a paralyzed man. This takes place in chapter five, five where we find this third sign of John's, uh, John pointing again to the divinity of Jesus. And in this account, Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And not only does Jesus perform a miracle, but this miracle creates all kinds of controversy especially with the G Jewish religious establishment. And it, they begin literally to plot his death at this particular miracle. And this third sign takes us on to another step of evidence about Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus Lord of nature and he's Lord of life, but we now learn that sinful people, no matter how sinful, may have life through faith in Jesus Christ, so that Jesus Christ is the restorer of lost powers, both physical and spiritual. You know, after the healing of the sinful man, Jesus' instructions to him are to go and see that you sin no more. Go and see that you sin no more. And so friends, we too, when we recognize Jesus' divinity, his power, we must make the choice to respond in belief. And how do we show that belief and that faith? We turn from our sins and our selfishness and our personal control of our life by trusting fully in the lordship of Jesus and his words. We show our faith and our belief just like this paralyzed man. Well, sign number four is one that's very well known, and it is the feeding of the 5,000. I bet 
most everybody here has heard about this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus's, uh, John's next signpost points to the great truth that Jesus sustains spiritual life. This familiar miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, remember it was with one boy's lunch that Jesus breaks bread and he feeds this giant crowd. By the way, it was many more than 5,000. That was just the men they counted. There were women and children and many others there. And so it's a supernatural miracle on a mass, a mass scale. And it is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? And perhaps that indicates the extra importance of the lesson of this particular sign. Now, it's not until the next day after the great miracle when the crowd chases Jesus down because they're looking to get another free lunch that we realize the significance of the miracle. In explaining the significance of the fourth sign, Jesus says in John chapter 6, and I want to read these words together in verse 35. Let's read. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a powerful statement. Friends, all of the deep cravings, the desires, the thirst of our life, all of it is met in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else can fulfill your deepest longings. Do you realize that? Jesus is not talking here about bread and water, is he? But he's talking about providing eternal spiritual sustenance to those who will what? Believe. Who place their trust in him. Friends, if we want to never hunger, to never thirst, then what will we do? We will jump out of the plane without a parachute, trusting in Jesus as our Savior. By the way, there are not only seven signs or miracles in John's gospel. There are also seven parables about the person of Jesus in John's gospel, which are all introduced with the claim of Jesus's I am. And just as the seven signs reveal Jesus's divinity, the seven I am statements in John reveal Jesus's nature. So we're going to stop here on sign number four and take a quick little detour from our signpost route to consider these I am statements. And so if you're following on your outline, we're going to skip down to the bottom of your outline for just a moment. And we're going to look at these seven statements that Jesus made. And these were pivotal to his ministry. They were connected to Old Testament prophecies. And they were all about his claims of who he really was. They were also particularly significant to the first century Jewish listener and reader. Who would have better understood the context of what Jesus was saying when he made these I am statements? You see, God had centuries before the time of Jesus revealed himself to Moses. If you remember that story, Moses at the burning bush and God says, go to Egypt and lead my people out. And he says, who should I say sent me? And God said, you tell him I am sent you. I am who I am. I am is the personal name of God. And throughout the Old Testament, I am is represented. And 
much of what the Jews did with that is that they would expand on the I am statement and they would add things to it to show us different facets of who God is. I am is translated in Hebrew as Yahweh and in English we get our term Jehovah or sometimes in your English translations in the New Testament if you see Lord all capitalized, it's referring back to Jehovah or Yahweh. And so by the Jewish people, by giving God names that clarified his nature or character, it helped to uh, uh, show who God was based upon his provision and upon his miracles. And so scripture is filled with I am names about God. Uh, some that you might have heard, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider. Or Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is the healer. Jehovah Nisei, the Lord, my banner, my signpost. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord, my shepherd. And there are many, many others. Well, then centuries later, after God issued his I am statement, Jesus uses the same term, the same name, I am, as recorded by John to describe himself. And so here in John 6.35, this statement is the first of Jesus' seven I am statements as recorded by John. And each of these I am's uh, statements claims uh, 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 they're, they're worth a, a study, a careful study. And so as we travel on our route through the Gospel of John, as we stop at these various signposts that we're looking at, we're also going to examine these seven I am statements. But for your reference, I'm just going to list them here very quickly. We're not going to go into detail because we're going to hit them later when we get to them. But here's the list that Jesus said of himself, I am the first one, the bread of life. And then Jesus said of himself in John uh, chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the door for the sheep. In chapter 10 also, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, in chapter 15, I am the true vine. Each of these unique and powerful statements help us to see different facets of Jesus' nature. But for now, we're going to get back to our signposts, all right? Back to our signs. And so we're back to sign number five, back up higher on your outline there. Sign number five, Jesus walking on the water. Another well-known miracle. This fifth sign is given in John chapter six and it's in between the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the explanation that Jesus gives of the significance of the feeding of the crowd. And so after the feeding of the, of the crowd, Jesus told his disciples to get in a boat and to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That would be a trip of six or seven miles. Meanwhile, Jesus went alone up on the mountainside to pray. And during that period of time, a great storm arises and the disciples, many of whom are seasoned fishermen who had spent their entire professional lives right there on that very sea, those guys are fearing for their lives. They are scared that they're about to die until Jesus arrives on the scene. 
Now you're likely familiar with many of the details of the story from some of the other gospels, but let's read John's abbreviated account. He doesn't give a lot of the details like the other gospels do of this particular account, but let's read this together from John 6, 16 through 21. Let's begin. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Wow, isn't that cool? They're halfway, did you catch that? Halfway across the lake in the middle of the night in a vast storm when Jesus shows up, gets into the boat, and like that, they're across to the other side. Here we see the disciples in great difficulty, even though... They're obeying Jesus. They're doing what Jesus told them to do, and yet they're about to die. He told them to get in that boat, to go to the other side. And he also made a promise to meet them. And guess what? Jesus fulfilled his promise, in spite of all the natural obstacles in the way. The presence of Jesus was needed to help the disciples. And so Jesus came triumphing over all of the limitations of the sea and the storm and the distance and all of those other things that could come against him. And Jesus helped the disciples to reach the goal they aimed to reach, which was the other shore. By the way, if we accept and believe the first sign of John 2, that Jesus is Lord of nature, then we have no difficulty in also accepting, John, uh, accepting John's account here of Jesus walking on the water. Because he is Lord of nature. All the forces of nature are under his control. But it's important to note this. Nobody saw this sign except the 12 disciples. You see, this is a sign meant only for those who closely follow Jesus. And I believe that's why John included this important sign in his gospel. Today, we call ourselves Christians or disciples. And so this is not a sign for those who have no faith in Jesus. This is a sign for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so the disciples were obeying Jesus. And yet, they were in great difficulty when Jesus came to them. And so here's the meaning of the sign. Jesus comes to his disciples in every crisis of their need. No barriers can keep Jesus Christ away from his disciples in their time of need. Do you understand how significant this is? What a tremendous and powerful sign is here for us today. You know, often Christians are confronted with serious crises in their life, with difficulties when they're seeking to obey Jesus. Have you ever been there? I'm doing everything right, Lord. Why is this happening? Storms of opposition are flying around us. Hardship, uncertainty. And it may cause us, like those disciples, to despair. Maybe despair of our own life. 
And then when we are in the deepest of trouble, if we are still trusting in Jesus, we become conscious of a strange, mysterious presence and a settled calm and a strength comes to us, replacing our weakness. And we, too, discover the truth of this sign. That when we need Jesus Christ, no barriers of time or distance or trials can separate Jesus Christ from his followers who need him. Do you believe that? Friends, may this sign and may this truth carry you through the year ahead. Because I guess I, I, I can be confident in saying this. There's going to be some storms coming for you and for me. Storms are going to be brewing. And we need to be ready. And most of all, we need to be placing our full trust in Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on. Sign number six. Healing the blind man. Another healing. Another meaningful signpost for Christ's followers. Jesus and his disciples come across a blind man at one of the temple gates in Jerusalem as they're entering the city. And this man was evidently well known. He'd probably been there for quite a while. And the disciples see in this man that is born blind, the disciples see a, 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 a subject of speculation as to the cause of his blindness. That's what they were talking about. Wonder what made this guy blind? Was it him? Was it his parents? Was it some sinful choice? They're talking about that. But Jesus' attitude is very different. Jesus' attitude was that the blind man was not a subject for speculation or discussion. This was a man in need of help. Not a cause for developing a theory, but a human being in real need of assistance. And so the blind man was an opportunity for Jesus to reveal his healing power of turning darkness, the darkness of blindness, into the light of sight. Those themes of light and darkness, of good and evil, they weave their way all the way through John's gospel. So as we work our way on our journey through John, I want you to keep an eye out for light and darkness because they come up frequently. By the way, this passage contains uh, the second of Jesus' I am statements. And so I want to read just a, a part of this account from John 9, verses 3 through 7. Let's read this together. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Hmm. Man, there's all kinds of interesting things in that. We could speculate and talk and discuss all kinds of things. But I want you to notice this, that Jesus doesn't really comment on the cause of the man's blindness. But he does say that the blindness will be used to reveal the works of God. Because that was what Jesus was all about. 
And that's what Jesus continues to be about today. He's all about revealing the work of God. And guess what? As Jesus lives in our life through his Holy Spirit, as he guides and directs us, he is busy revealing the works of God through us to those who yet are to know him. And so this signpost points to Jesus' divine power to bring the spiritual light of truth and destroy the darkness of sin and doubt and ignorance for those who will choose to obey him. You see, some will obey. Some will question and some will reject. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is what direction will we take when we recognize the sign? The sign pointing to Jesus, the power of spiritual light. Will we obey? Will we question? Will we reject? It's up to us. Which leads us then to the seventh, the final sign. Sign number seven, the raising of Lazarus from the grave. In what is perhaps his most amazing miracle, Jesus raises from the grave his dear friend Lazarus, who has been buried in that tomb for four days. In combination with this important sign, Jesus also makes another powerful I am statement. And so let's read a portion of this encounter from John chapter 11, verses 21 through 27. Words on the screen. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Wow. You understand how powerful that encounter is? So we discover from this sign the significance is that Jesus is the Lord of eternal life. The Lord of eternal life. Friends, how often do we pray for things like the lifting of pain, the healing of an illness? And yet, because our Lord loves us, and because he has a greater eternal life and blessing for us, sometimes he delays his answer to our prayers, just like he did for Mary and Martha. Remember in the story that Jesus purposely waited until he knew that Lazarus had died before he showed up on the scene. You know, often we pray. We pray for things all the time and his answer is delayed. Or maybe it seems even non-existent. But this incident tells us that even death itself is not final. Even death does not defeat God's purposes. You see, brothers and sisters, our true and our sincere and our obedient faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of eternal life, is more important than our physical life or well-being. It is more important than our personal desires or our preferences or our opinions. 
You know, sometimes the Lord uses even physical death itself to provide the greater blessing of eternal life. And so when God seems to delay his answer to our prayers, he just may be waiting, waiting in order to give us a greater blessing than we can ask or hope or even imagine. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The words of Jesus. And then he said, do you believe this? That's what he asked of Martha. And that's what he asks of us. Friends, do you believe? What is your answer? And more importantly, what will you do with Jesus and his signs and his statements? I mentioned at the beginning that John's gospel can only be understood and fully appreciated when we see John's plan as listed in John 20, 30, and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what say you? Are you ready to jump out of the plane without a parachute? It might seem foolish and risky, even stupid. But remember, faith is always a step that involves risk, but it's also based on good and sufficient reasons. And so as we work our way through John, looking at the good and sufficient reasons for us to take the step of risk and put our faith and trust in Jesus, my prayer is that in this year ahead and through our time in the Gospel of John, that your faith will be strengthened and established and confirmed, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your powerful word. Father, we thank you for the gospel of John and for John's careful collection of putting together these signs, these statements, these observations. Lord, we know that he was led by your spirit. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have protected your word through thousands of years so that today we can still read this eyewitness testimony and that it can still be powerful and moving for us, Lord, so that our faith in you can be strengthened. Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us, build us up, encourage us, and direct us in the year ahead as we follow the path you have for each of us individually and as a body of believers connected here at Gardenway Church. Bless us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.